So what's the identity of a microservice, right? It's, yeah. it's not a user. It doesn't have um, a first name and a last name. It doesn't have a phone number. It can do MFA. Um, so there really needs to be a different um, attention to this uh, use case. Welcome back, everyone, to the DevSec for Scale podcast. My name is Jeremy Hess, and with me today is Yuval Yogev. He's the chief architect at Signia, really cool startup, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And before we get started, uh, Yuval, thanks for joining. Um, let's get straight into it. What are the different kinds of authentication and authorization use cases that need to be handled when building a product? Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, and yeah, so there, there are actually so many different types of use cases and needs to be handled. But if I would mention like the top three that are most common in basically in uh, growing startups. So the first one is obvious is users that want to log into your, to your website, to your console, whatever that would be. Um, so they want to um, sign up somehow. They want to enter the username and password. Um, you probably want to enforce some kind of um, policies like MFAs or single sign-on. Um, so that's the, the basic one, and that's the one that everyone uh, knows, right? Um, but apart from that, we have like a couple of more use cases. So for example, one of the big ones that are creating challenges for startups is machine to machine. Um, so we're, we're going to touch about that in, in, in a few minutes, but um, not not every time is that the user is creating the the action to uh, to do something that it needs to be authenticated. So, for, for example, some, sometimes you have two services that you actually build, and they want to talk to each other, but you want to make sure that only your service can talk to uh, to the other service in an authenticated way. But for example, MFA doesn't make sense here, right? So um, it's it's and this service doesn't have a first name and a last name like the user has. So it's kind of a different use case. Um, and maybe the last one that we can mention is external APIs. So for example, many, many different companies uh, like GitHub or Stripe or practically every company today offers some kind of a public API that users can, um, can query uh, to, to do things on the, on the platform. So uh, that is another use case, right? So again, not every time MFA makes sense here, and maybe you want to limit your API. Maybe some API routes are uh, suited for this kind of role, but the other ones uh, don't. Um, and this is something that is exposed to, exposed to, the, to the internet. So again, this is another niche of, of authentication and authorization uh, that needs to be handled. Absolutely. Great stuff. So uh, Yuval, now that uh, we got that first question out of the way, uh, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about Signia? Sure. Um, so as I said, my name is Yuval. I'm the chief architect at Signia. Um, at Signia, we're a cybersecurity company, um, and we are building an XDR and using that to perform incident response and threat hunting. So basically what that means is that um, we engage with clients that are either in a very big crisis. So for example, um, are being uh, hacked, their network has been breached. Sometimes it's um, ransomware attacks or many, many different types of attacks that we see uh, on the wild. And sometimes it's uh, clients that want to make sure that the network won't be breached or maybe do some proactive hunting to search for threats that might be uh, on their network. 
So, and, and we're leveraging our XDR that we're building to do all of that. So that practically means that um, we try to collect any piece of data that is um, produced by any type of software that the client has can be application logs, it can be network logs, it can be different kind of metrics or, or files. Basically, again, every, every, every piece of data that we can find, we're taking all of that and we're trying to um, uh, make sense uh, of all of that data. So that means that we're trying to ask questions that can lead us to potential threats or breaches in the network. So that could mean either um, uh, searching for anomalies in the network or searching for behaviors that we know that are suspicious. Um, and obviously the, the, the MITRE table is, is uh, MITRE attack table is very relevant here, right? Um, so we would search for many different kinds of, uh, of techniques that are used by attackers today. And we're trying to find that in all of that uh, data. Once we find it, we're trying to contextualize it. So we're trying to make, um, to create a bigger picture for, for a single event, because a single event doesn't necessarily represent uh, a complicated attack. So what we're trying to do is actually um, cross analyze different kinds of sources and create at the end of the day, a timeline for an attack uh, and see that how the attacker got his first credentials. What servers did he log into? Did he make some kind of uh, lateral movement? Um, did he take any data out of the network? Many different kinds of questions that are very interesting for us and for, the, and for our clients. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, really great. Um, yeah, if this was a, a podcast for data analysts, then uh, we would definitely talk about the amount of data you have to <laughs> scrub through just to find all that and put all those points together because that's a, that's a whole different topic. Uh, yeah, that's, so, that's actually a great point. So basically, we're, we're half a data company and half a, a cybersecurity company, and we're really trying to bridge that gap and, and uh, create insights uh, from both of these worlds. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get a little bit now into the uh, into the you know get our hands dirty, uh, talking a bit more about uh, microservices and the the security issues that it poses. So uh, obviously, we're seeing more and more companies move towards microservices architectures. So what do you see as some of the challenges uh, in regards to authentication and authorization in that realm? Sure, yeah. Microservices are, are very popular and many companies uh, adopt that. Um, and for mainly for good reasons, right? There, there are many very good reasons to, to adopt that from um, easier upgrades to um, making different teams more independent and, and so on and so on. Um, but however, microservices uh, pose many different uh, challenges. And in the security area, and especially authentication and authorization, um, it adds a lot, complex, a lot more complexity to the system. So for example, if you take a look at how systems were built traditionally, so maybe you had some kind of uh, um, a piece of your, of, of your software that was supposed to be your, uh, you know, your authentication and authorization server, which contained all of the uh, user data and, what, and knew uh, which users can do what. Um, in a microservice, in microservices world, you have say 10 or 20 or 50 or, or more uh, microservices. And each of every one of them needs to know all of these type of uh, uh, which user can do what. Um, and is this user authenticated? Can, is he allowed to do that action? 
And what happens is if, if you have all of these microservices talking to the same uh, authorization server or authentication server, that's great. that creates a very, uh, you know, a single point of failure, right? If, if it has a, a, um, even a small hiccup, it affects so many uh, microservices all around your, uh, your system. Um, so the solution to that is, is actually making those microservices independent in also in terms of authentication and authorization. So that means, can they handle it on their own? And to do that, that again creates uh, another type of complexity because uh, now you can't, you, you have to have some kind of, uh, of a solution that again is independent. So for example, uh, one of the topics that we can mention here is JWT. Uh, so JWT, for anyone who doesn't know, is a format uh, for uh, storing JSON tokens. Um, and we, we, don't, we won't go too much into details, but one of, the, um, one of the interesting things about JWT is that, it, first of all, um, it, can be, it can be verified independently. So that means that every microservices, um, assuming he has some kind of, uh, of a shared um, key or secret, uh, it really depends how you handle it, can verify that the JWT token is actually valid and uh, came from an authenticated user. Um, so that's, that's one really good uh, property. And the second one is that it can actually hold data. So the JWT doesn't only uh, um, hold uh, a signature that you need to verify, but it can also um, hold data like uh, the user details, the role, um, the type of session that he's engaging with, and, and, and other what called uh, claims. Um, and these two properties together make it a very valuable. So that's just one example of, of maybe how to, to deal with this kind of challenge. But again, zooming out, having all of those independent uh, pieces uh, in your system uh, makes you think about authentication and authorization all the time because it's not like you have you know one uh, one part of your system where you you handle authentication and authorization and then you move on and from then uh, uh, everything is you know the authentication is given now it's it's really spread around all of the system and as we said in the beginning having those microservices creates another challenge right so they need to talk to each other um, because when it, when in the, in the traditional way way where we had uh, a monolith. There wasn't like um, cross microservices communication since there there was maybe one microservice, so it was uh, as easy as calling a function, right? Uh, and here, when you're, for example, talking um, between microservices, you have uh, many different new things that you need to consider. So first of all, it really depends what protocol, what communication protocol are you using between those microservices. So if you're using HTTP or gRPC or uh, other protocols that may impose different type of authentication that uh, you need to implement. Um, the second one, as, as we said, if you're using um, uh, an off-the-shelf product, for example, um, Okta or Auth0 or Frontend or Amazon Cognito or Azure Active Directory, whatever that is, um, it, when you are talking about an identity provider, that's like a very important term in, in that area, so an identity provider is, is the entity that holds uh, and, and identifies all of the identities in the network. So what's the identity of a microservice? 
right? It's, yeah. it's not a user. It doesn't have um, a first name and a last name. It doesn't have a phone number. It can do MFA. Um, so there really needs to be a different um, attention to this uh, use case. Um, so again, you don't want to have MFA. You probably want to have some kind of a different token that they can establish um, together. And again, in an independent way without being uh, dependent on uh, the auth server or whatever that would be. You maybe want to have an option to um, uh, replace and rotate those tokens. Um, so again, it's, it's a very different type of world than the user um, authentication. Uh, and again, maybe just completing the cycle from the first question, we have another use case with which is the um, the external API. So so suddenly you have maybe an API, a, a microservice on its own maybe that needs to handle um, internet requests um, from users that are not uh, necessarily uh, users in your system, but have maybe an API key. So that means that suddenly you're, you need to handle those um, creating API keys, revoking them, um, and have every API key not only, again, not only validated, but you need to somehow store the logic of, okay, that API key can only access these types of, uh, so for example, this is only a read-only read, read only API key. It can't actually change or write things into the system as opposed to the admin API key. Um, so as you see, the complexity of, of, uh, of authentication authorization is, is is uh, big on its own. And then adding, splitting your system into different microservices only fragments this whole thing and makes it even uh, more complicated. And I think this is one of the reasons also that um, companies like uh, Okta and Auth0 and, and all of these are, uh, are there and, and are actually very thriving since it's, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated for developers, but it's also very hard to get right. So even if you have the resources into um, uh, to billing it and, and create a, some kind of authorization mechanism, it's very, very hard to get right if you think about all of these different types of uh, niches and, and, and use cases. Yeah, absolutely. Complexity. So um, we talked earlier uh, about uh, the migration uh, with Signia that you're making towards uh, multi-tenancy architecture. Uh, and before we talk a little bit about uh, sort of the, the details of you know, security around that, can you just give us a, a little bit of a background of what the reason smaller companies usually start in that single tenancy uh, architecture? Yeah, so um, we see a lot of companies starting with multi-tenancy and we see a lot of companies starting with single tenancy. And Usually that comes with like some kind of um, a combination of historic reasons of what was easy at that time, plus some constraints that the company um, uh, had. So for example, if, if you think about single tenancy, that could be um, looked at something very maybe um, old and not efficient. Uh, and, and, and that's uh, half true, right? Um, but it does create a lot of advantages, especially for fast-growing startups. So um, if we can think about a few of them, right? So uh, first of all, um, we don't have the, uh, the notoriously famous uh, noisy neighbor problem, right? So noisy neighbor means that if we have one tenant that is very large and has maybe a very high throughput of data coming into, and another one which is very low, um, 
Then in multi-tenancy, you have both of them, if you're not safeguarding it the right way, um, they interfere with each other, right? In a single tenant way, everyone has its own infrastructure, its own application, its own instances, and you actually, um, it, it might be harder to uh, manage since you have a few instances to manage, but each one of them, again, is independent and is not affected by anything uh, around it. Um, th same thing for, um, uh, if you think about deploying, upgrading versions, things like that. It's harder to deploy and, and, and uh, upgrade versions to uh, 20 tenants um, if you do it one by one. However, if you only have one to upgrade, then you are limited in what you can do, right? So if you, uh, if you deploy and you have um, some kind of bug or a downtime, which happens a lot for, you know, for new uh, startups that want to move fast, then you have downtime for all of your users instead of um, maybe for one user. Um, maybe you want to, in a single tenant way, you can roll back one tenant that has maybe a, a specific problem and let the other one proceed. So it's really a trade-off between flexibility and ease of operations in terms of you know putting it all in the same place, um, and that and that drives us to the next question, right? So obviously, getting to multi-tenancy it makes a lot of sense, especially from a, a financial standpoint. Um, but in terms of the complexity of dealing with security, what are sort of those security issues that you're seeing? Um, you know, because of let's say through the transition of you know, making, uh, becoming multi-tenant and then also dealing with just the complexity as a multi-tenancy application. Yeah, so as you said, there, there are many very good reasons uh, to move to multi-tenancy. So financial is maybe the top one, um, you know, having the same, inf sharing the same uh, infra makes you much more efficient uh, in the resources that you spend. Also, again, as I said, in terms of uh, managing only one thing, um, it's easier. But actually, uh, I want to stress out a point here is that multi-tenancy doesn't have one meaning, right? So it's, it's a very big word. And sometimes maybe some people think that, okay, multi-tenancy means you have one server, one instance of your application, and that's it. That's for everyone. And that, that's not the case all the time. So multi-tenancy can mean different things at different levels of your application. So just one example, if we take databases, for example. Um, multi-tenancy can mean, okay, we have one table and we're putting all of the data of all of the um, tenants together. And we have, you know, uh, the tenant ID column. And when we query a data of a tenant, we just add the, you know, the where tenant ID equals um, X. But that, that, that's not the only solution, right? We can have different tables for different tenants. We can have different schemas for different tenants. Um, we can also have different databases for different tenants. And you know, saying that one is multi-tenancy or, um, or one is not, is, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a gray area, right? Um, so multi-tenancy can mean a lot of things. Um, but anyway, when, when you're uh, getting into putting um, different tenants uh, closer together, okay, maybe that's the, the more accurate uh, way of saying it, um, security challenges start to arise. Right, so let's take uh, the, the database example again. So we, we took all of the different uh, databases, we merged them into one, so now we're super efficient, but now all of the tenants data is in the same table. Um, that's great, that creates a huge security concern, right? 
what happens if someone gets access to your database? Can he view all of the um, uh, all of the tenants' data? Uh, it has only one password, right? Um, are you limiting? Uh, are you performing what's called row-level security, meaning different types of users can only access different types of rows? How are you making sure that your, for example, your web application? How do you make sure that uh, not any developer forgot to add that? where clause, right? So if you, um, you know, select star from whatever, and you didn't add the, the where tenant ID equals uh, something, what happens? Do you have some kind of way to make sure that a human mistake can, um, uh, wouldn't uh, uh, create some, uh, such, such uh, data leakage or, or something like that? Um, so that's a, like a huge security concern, right? Um, when talking about authentication, we can talk about the same thing, right? We, we, you, you don't necessarily want to have, for example, the same token uh, or the same secret to create tokens for different tenants. I mean, uh, if, you, if a user is authenticated um, for his own company, right? If I'm, if, if I'm logged into some, to one of our SaaS uh, that we're using with my, uh, with my own uh, user, can I somehow take that token and maybe try to, um, uh, you know, fraud myself as, as someone else and, and log into a different organization because in the backend that is only, uh, you know, one instance of the app and it stores in, in one database and it only has one secret. So it's, it's a very hard trade-off, you know, putting it all together in terms of resources and financial resources and, and management and upgrades and all of that. But um, still having those separation, the right separation at the right places. So whether it in the table um, level or the schema level or the app level, or um, you know, it's it's uh, there are many different types of solutions to solve it. But the the point is that when you're moving to multi-tenancy, you you always have to have that in mind. And when you're dealing with single tenancy, that's a little bit easier, right? It's not, uh, it's not uh, the easiest thing, but it's a little bit easier because um, everything is separated in the highest level, right? It's not the same server. It's not the same database. Um, and, and you, and you do, you, you do uh, multi-tenancy though from a Kubernetes uh, level, is that, is that right? Yeah, so we, we are heavy users of Kubernetes. Um, be because of many, again, many different reasons for auto scaling and for easier um, uh, hardware abstraction and, and many good things that Kubernetes gives us. Um, if you look at Kubernetes in terms of multi-tenancy, that, that starts to be very interesting because again, Kubernetes, the, the, the basic idea is, is, um, is again, hardware abstraction and container orchestration. Um, so that means that for example, if you're running all of your software on the same Kubernetes cluster, that means that your multi-tenant, your multi-tenancy is in the infra level because they share the same servers, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's on the application level. It doesn't mean that it's the same container actually that is serving all of the clients. It can mean that, but not, not necessarily. And when you're putting everything in the same infra, um, you have to have, again, some kind of separation. So Kubernetes gives you a lot of uh, flexibility in terms of uh, applying that separation. But again, you have to have that in mind and, and, and apply it and apply it correctly. And that's, again, something that is a bit hard to, uh, to get right. 
So for example, one thing that we can mention is, is namespaces, right? That's the, a very popular building block in Kubernetes that is giving you um, logical separation. It's a very important building block. However, it's not a security mechanism on its own. Actually, it's not a security mechanism at all. It's just a logic separation between um, resources on the cluster. Um, however, it, it gives you the base level, the, the, the right terms to talk about when you start applying security mechanisms. So what, are, what security mechanisms, uh, for example, are we talking about? So the, the first one and the most basic one is network policies. Right, so you want to avoid in all costs the opportunity that a namespace of tenant uh, A would somehow be able to connect or communicate um, to a namespace in, in tenant B. And again, behind the scenes, those can share the same server or being in two different servers, but in the same uh, network. But you have to have a layer of, of network policy that, will, um, that won't allow this type of communication. So again, namespaces can be a very powerful tool here, but they must come with additional uh, layers of, of uh, security on top of them. Absolutely, great stuff. So uh, one of the thing that, things that I ask, you know, some of my guests, which have uh, you know, a product that is meant to be used you know, also in-house sometimes, uh, so we call that dog fooding, of course. Uh, do you guys eat your own dog food at Signia? Do you use your own product? Yeah, oh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. So first of all, uh, the answer is yes, obviously. Um, so again, as, as a security company in general, and specifically a security company that deals with very, sometimes very sensitive situation, we are extremely serious about two things. Uh, we're, we're serious about our customer security and data, and we're serious about our security and data. And these, these actually, you know, they overlap because obviously Signia sees so many clients and we have to have our, you know, the, the most, um, the, the best security that uh, we can have both on our network, on our data resources and, and on everything. Um, that's, that's, by the way, one of the, right, the, the reasons to start with single tenant uh, architecture that, because your tenants are separated in the most extreme way. Um, so yeah, we, we are definitely using our own XDR, uh, which is deployed at Signia's network. Uh, it's, it's, we, we actually treat it as one of our clients. So we are one of our clients in every term, right? In terms of, of resources and financial and support and security and, and everything. And we are constantly um, using that, the system. We're doing uh, proactive uh, hunting. Um, we're looking for things in our own network to make sure that we didn't miss anything. Um, so we use it uh, heavily. And that's actually a very nice thing, right? Because you get to use your own product all the time. and think about improvements or new areas that uh, that we can um, uh, create uh, and really improve the product because again you're using it on your own and you're finding the the same issues that users might be finding and you're able to patch them quickly and and move forward so that's always yeah. a, a great great reason to be using your own product um, so the last question that i'll ask and thanks you all for your time um can you give us one or two tips that you have for developers in, let's say, smaller organizations uh, that can help them implement kind of a security best practice um, 
into their daily routines that won't interrupt, you know, their general workflows? Sure. Um, I think that today, if you're talking about best practices, it's very, you know, everyone knows that you should have MFA. Everyone knows that you should uh, have a way to revoke tokens. These, these things are kind of, you know, but I think that like the, um, uh, the most interesting part is how do you do that correctly? And as you said, without interrupting, you know, the whole, um, I, I wouldn't say without interrupting, I would say, keep your focus on your, on your business, right? Build the thing that you want to build and not uh, worry about security all of the time because you won't have time to do anything else. So my general tip here is um, buy and don't build. And this is uh, coming from, and this tip is not all, uh, always true, right? Not in every case that is true, but especially for um, growing startups that have limited resources, limited time uh, to, to deal with that. And again, it's, it's a complicated subject, right? It's, uh, yeah. We talked about the different use cases and, and microservices and Kubernetes, and it's so many verticals to consider here. It's very difficult to get it right. Um, and my, uh, so, so my tip again here is, is buy and don't build. And there are so many great products uh, out there to use. Um, and yeah, you're better off using something that is, you know, um, checked and validated and have the right compliance and you, and just, you know, move your worries from you to, to, to the company that actually specializes in, in it. And you uh, focus your time on, on building the thing that you're specializing. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my tip. Wonderful, love it. So Yuval, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a really great discussion. I think we got a lot of fantastic information. So really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that we can follow up on a future podcast or a meetup. And uh, looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. You got it. Good luck with Signia and have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.